John Dennis here on Tuesday the 26th of January. Today, as voters' desire for a change of government looks increasingly unshakable, according to a new Guardian ICM poll, the Prime Minister pins his hopes on the economy. I'm confident that the UK economy is emerging from recession. A dramatic intervention by Gordon Brown and the Irish PM, Brian Cowan, as they try to rescue power sharing in Northern Ireland. Also today, foreigners are targeted by terrorists in Baghdad, including our own Martin Chulov. A very close call. As I stand here talking to you, I, I look at houses either side of me which are destroyed. Um, we look at the Humrah, which is only 100 metres from us. It's not inhabitable anymore. A Manchester head teacher tells us how he's tackling extremism in his school. The child in my school said, I think the world would be a great place if it all became Christian. Or another one said, we'll only be happy when we're all Muslims. So that's a fine point of view, you know, I don't have to agree with it. I draw the line of when a child thinks that they have to take some kind of action. And The Guardian's editor asks whether journalism exists. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk First, our top story. An ICM poll for The Guardian today shows the Conservatives holding on to their lead over Labour. Gordon Brown and David Cameron held press conferences yesterday in which they both focused on the economy. I'm confident that the UK economy is emerging from recession. But there are dangerous global forces, volatile oil prices, financial market uncertainties, imbalances, protectionist threats, risk to growth in every continent, which mean that the world and the UK economy remain fragile and policymakers around the world and in the United Kingdom must remain vigilant. The Conservative leader stressed that Britain needed to reduce public spending to tackle the levels of government debt. You cannot do it all in one year, in two years, in three years. Of course you can't. You cannot deal with this deficit through um, spending alone. Of course you can't. But you can show that you are serious about it. And it's time for this government to get serious, to put away their pathetic dividing lines, to put away their moral cowardice in not dealing with this issue, and to behave like a grown-up government, looking the British public in the eye and saying, we have a problem, we're going to deal with it with you, as we've been suggesting now for months and months and months. Columnist Julian Glover has details of today's ICM poll. Well, in one way... I mean, I could hazard a guess and say it almost tells us the result of the general election. Barring a big shock, I think the consensus is now settling. that The Tory party has an overall lead in the share of the vote of about 10 points. In our poll today, it's 11 points. A few other polls recently have been 9 points, roughly around 10. Labour, just below or just above 30. So in our poll today, they're on 29, a bit disappointing for them. The Tories, around 40. And, and today's poll in the ICM, we've got them on 40% for... I think it's the fourth ICM poll in a row. So in one way, it tells us politics is quite static. And the Lib Dems are creeping up a bit. They're on 21, which is good for them. Maybe the Iraq, all that Chilcot inquiry is helping them. Maybe just another bit of variation in polling. But the gaps are clear there. What it, of course, doesn't really tell us is that what that will mean in terms of seats or indeed whether there's an issue out there that might swing the election that we haven't yet worked out what it is. Now, we heard David Cameron and Gordon Brown setting out their stalls on the economy yesterday. Um, Brown said he's confident that we will see the UK uh, emerging from recession in the next, as the next quarter's results are announced. Um, if that does prove to be the case, do you think that that will enhance the government's credibility on the economy? And will that have an effect on future polls? Well, Labour's obviously putting hope in economic recovery as a driver of, of, of Labour support. And I guess this poll suggests so far there isn't much sign of that. 
And we did ask one question. Um, do you think, uh, given there's uh, announcements about economic recovery this week, do you think Gordon Brown's leadership made it better or worse? You know, was he the guy who got us through the tough times? And a bit disappointingly for him, most voters think he made it worse. There are plenty of people out there, including Labour supporters, who think he did a good job. Uh, Tories tend to think he did a bad job. But there isn't massive public gratitude for his economic leadership. And maybe if Britain comes out of recession, rather than returning to Labour, people will say, thank God that's over. Let's look to the future. We can elect a Tory government without worrying too much. What about voters' v- views on class? Because this is one issue that does keep sort of rearing its head as we uh, as we look at the sort of possibility of Etonians taking over the government once again. Yeah, I mean, it's quite hard to measure class, of course. If you ask people what class they're in, um, they might not have an answer at all. They might answer in a way that doesn't really relate to their economics. Um, so most people in Britain, if you ask them, as we did in the poll today, say they're working class. Probably if you looked at Britain, you'd say most people in Britain today actually are middle class in income. But they see themselves as working class, um, middle class next. Nobody thinks they're upper class. And perhaps a bit of danger for the Tories. A third of voters do think the Tories are the party of the upper classes, which is a bit of a, a tough tag that might harm them, since nobody actually is upper class. On the other hand, there's a danger for Labour in that too, in that people see Labour as the party of the working classes. About 30% think that. Well, obviously, lots of people are working class, so perhaps they'll identify with Labour. But anybody aspirational might see Labour as the party of, of, of kind of decline and of not, of not of wealth and ambition. And so Gordon Brown last week gave a speech saying the party's the party of the middle class. Everyone's fighting over class. He says, I can do working class, upper class and middle class. Well, it doesn't, that doesn't seem to come down too well. People um, overall think the Tory party is the party that represents either the middle classes or everybody more than Labour does. So it's very tangled, but maybe a bit of uh, separation. Tories is the party of the rich, Labour is the party of the poor, and the voters are a bit confused in the middle. Julian Glover, and there's full coverage today at guardian.co.uk slash politics. Also on The Guardian's website. I'm Matt Seaton, and I'm editor of Comment is Free. And on our site today, we have Dylan Evans telling us how better we could forecast the level of terror threat. Our own Jessica Reed tells us why being called Mademoiselle makes her mad. And Billy Bragg tells us why he's going to be at Speaker's Corner next Sunday to protest against RBS bonuses. That's at guardian.co.uk forward slash comment is free. Gordon Brown and his Irish counterpart Brian Cowan have flown to Northern Ireland to try to resolve differences between Sinn Féin and the Democratic Unionists. Henry MacDonald is our Ireland correspondent. He's in Belfast. I think Gordon Brown and Brian Cowan have come to Northern Ireland because they have become alarmed that things are getting serious in terms of a political crisis and a potential collapse in the Assembly. This was not choreographed. I think this was in response to a failure lunchtime yesterday for Sinn Féin and the DUP to uh, agree to a deal on policing injustice. So they're, they're here in Northern Ireland to rescue the, 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 the political process and save it from collapse. Why is it on the brink of collapse? Well, I think, firstly, I think Sinn Féin are fed up with uh, the DUP's refusal to devolve policing and justice powers. Um, Sinn Féin set a Christmas deadline. They've busted that deadline. And I think they will be perceived to be weak if they let this run on any longer. If Martin McGuinness, for example, was to resign as Deputy First Minister, that would mean that the whole thing collapses. Then we would be into a period probably of uh, negotiations but probably before that, we would have to have assembly elections, fresh assembly elections. Now, that's something all unionists don't want at the moment because there is a fear that a split three-way unionist vote would let Sinn Féin become the biggest party. 
So I think there are a couple of things that are happening in the, in the unionist undergrowth. One is there are talks, tentative talks between the DUP and the Ulster unionists to have some kind of electoral pact. If there was an assembly election, they could operate as a coherent whole, a kind of a coalition, which could then constitute itself like a, like a single political party come the reformation of the assembly after the elections, and they could still have enough votes combined to elect the first minister. But it's a, that, that's a gamble. Henry MacDonald. My name's John Dennis. You're listening to Guardian Daily. The Turner Prize winning artist Chris Ophelia is the subject of a major retrospective at London's Tate Britain. It includes some new paintings that have dispensed with his trademark elephant dung. The Guardian's Charlotte Higgins. For people who associate Chris Ophelia with elephant dung, glitter, a very decorative, very overwrought surface, forget it. The new work is incredibly different. So in the exhibition, there are two rooms of relatively recent work. The first of those two rooms is everything in it is blue. He's gone through a blue period like Picasso. And these, one, these are paintings that are so dark, it's almost difficult to see any images in them at all. The colours are indigo, smoke, bilberry, no texture in them at all, very flat, and you have to move in front of the paintings very slowly to try and figure out what's going on in them at all. And in fact, there are mysterious figures in them and foliage, and it's very rich, and it's very midnight, and it's very dark. And then you go into the final room in the gallery, and your eyes get an absolute blast because suddenly it's colour again. And again, no elephant dung, no glitter. It's very flat. In a funny way, it's quite restrained, but there are big slashes of colour all over the canvases. So acid orange, really bright turquoise, sort of saffron up against this sort of terrifying purple. And again, mysterious figures inhabiting the paintings. So it's a big shock. I mean, he's moved to Trinidad in recent years. He's been based there. Uh, but he has had sort of exoticism in his previous work, hasn't he? I suppose that's right, in as much as he has drawn on... I mean, elephant shit's fairly uh, exotic for a start. That's right. That came from a trip that he made in the 90s as a, as a young man to Zimbabwe. And he became very interested in, A, the cave painting... Um, ancient African cave painting, and B, the sort of extraordinary thing of the elephant shit. So he brought that into his work. So what's going on now, in a way, is analogous to that. He's still painting what he is surrounded by. It just happens to be a different set of things that he's surrounded by. It's the first major retrospective of Chris Feely's work um, that we've seen in Britain. Is he an artist worthy of such a major show? I suspect that he is worthy of such a major show just because his reputation is so great. I mean, he, he won the Turner Prize in 1998. He represented Britain at the Venice Biennale in 2003. Um, he was the first black painter, for what it's worth, to have won the Turner Prize. He is a very big figure in British painting, and we haven't seen very much of his work in this country since... So, in a way, you know, we've been waiting for this. Charlotte Higgins and Chris Ophelia is at Tate Britain from tomorrow until the 16th of May. 
Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. Scores of people were killed yesterday in a series of suicide bomb attacks on targets used by Westerners in the centre of the Iraqi capital. It happened on the day of the execution of one of Saddam Hussein's most notorious henchmen, Chemical Ali, Ali Hassan al-Majid, notorious for the gassing of more than 5,000 Kurds in 1988. The Guardian's Baghdad correspondent, Martin Chulov, was in one of the hotels. Just before 4pm we heard the first explosion. Uh, it was a, a car bomb at the Palestine Hotel, uh, which is one of the Baghdad landmarks, probably about four or five kilometres from where we are. Um, very quickly after that, we were on our roof looking at the plume of smoke. There was a second explosion at the Babylon Hotel, which is just across the Tigris River from the US Embassy. Um, from past experience, we know that when there are one or two attacks, there's likely to be a third, and within a couple of minutes, there was a lot of shooting on the street uh, just outside where we are. Now, what's transpired is that um, a couple of guys with weapons have opened up on guards outside the Hamra Hotel in uh, downtown Baghdad, which has been home to journalists and uh, uh, government workers, uh, NGOs for the past six years. It, it's, almost, it's been celebrated as almost a Baghdad icon. Uh, there was a lot of gunfire. Um, Peshmerga, Kurdish Peshmerga soldiers opened up on those guys, as did the guards from inside the Hamra. Uh, there was a, a lot of gunfire directed at the Hamra Hotel, and the guards fought a retreat. And as they retreated, a van came along what, what was now an empty street, a white van with a red light on its roof. Uh, it, it breached the perimeter of the Hamra Hotel, got 70 metres inside it, and detonated and the, the carnage that is resulting from that is, uh, is quite a sight to behold. A close call for you personally, Martin. A very close call. As I stand here talking to you, I, I look at houses either side of me which are destroyed. Um, we look at the Humrah, which is only 100 metres from us. It's not inhabitable anymore. The, what remains of the Baghdad press corps uh, is either injured or is moving out because it is not fit to stay there anymore. Um, it's, it, was a, it was a truly frightening experience. There was a lot going on. It was, it was like a, a disaster exploding, uh, unfolding, I should say, in slow motion. And it just underscores how lethal this place still remains. Any word at this stage, Martin, uh, who is responsible for these attacks? Well, over the last six months, we've seen a series of these coordinated attacks. The last three have, have uh, targeted government ministries and they've all involved effective thought and planning. This is not random. Uh, this was coordinated. And the way that the, uh, the gates of the hammer were breached and uh, a van got inside, almost within 30 metres of the, of, the, of the lobby of the hotel itself, clearly shows a degree of coordination. And when we talk about something as sophisticated as that, uh, it, uh, the suspicion always falls back on the, the usual suspects, that being al-Qaeda in Iraq, the, uh, the Sunni insurgency or what remains of it, and those who are looking to disrupt the election in, in two months' time, which is seen as a crucial milestone of, uh, of any achievement in nation-building over the last four years. So I think the, uh, without knowing anything, none of us do at this point, but the finger of suspicion would point at the usual suspects. Martin Chulov.
Preventing children from being recruited by extremist groups is one of the responsibilities of Ian Fenn, the head of Burnage Media and Arts College. He's been described as Manchester's anti-extremism czar because he's been tasked by the government as one of its lead heads in a programme called Preventing Violent Extremism. He spoke to The Guardian's Martin Wainwright. So essentially we are working together with schools and what the, the schools in Manchester are trying to do is to come up with all sorts of initiatives, tried and tested ones, curriculum initiatives, um, use of theatre groups, um, discussion in classrooms, where we engage young people on everything to do with community cohesion and preventing violent extremism. Discussion in classrooms, I can see, you know, is, is a great idea and it means things aren't allowed to be sort of hidden and festering, but, but is there sort of open house, you know, are you going to recommend, do you think, that school children should be able to discuss anything, I mean, suicide bombing, all the trouble that's going on in the world? You can't just go into this blindly and say, well, let's have a discussion on something, you know, um, because you need a, a good deal of skills and experience in being able to allow kids to express themselves safely. Um, so they've got the confidence to share their shorts, to share their thoughts, which, if you don't, could fester and could um, take all sorts of twists and turns um, that leave that child vulnerable um, to people who've got a different agenda. So teachers tend to be very skilled at this sort of thing because we've been doing it for years. Um, but yet everything should be discussed. There should be no subject that's taboo. There are ground rules that are put in place so that people do things reasonably and don't just say things for effect, or if they do, that this is teased out and, and shown for what it is. But it's the kind of thing that we've been doing when I was at school, but now, of course, the, the subject material is perhaps a bit more visceral, a bit more important than it might have been, uh, like, do you want to be a vegetarian, you know, back in, in 1973. Because I suppose the context is different. I mean, when I was at school and, and university, there were a lot of revolutionary socialists around, you know, we occupied buildings, but it's not quite like that now. I think children have got the right, certainly, to, if you go back to the 70s, to, to discuss the, that they wanted to be communist and they thought the world would only be a good place when the whole world was communist. And, and if a child in my school said, I think the world would be a great place if it all became Christian, or another one said, we'll only be happy when we're all Muslims, that's a fine point of view. You know, I don't have to agree with it. I draw the line of when a child thinks that they have to take some kind of action which harms other people to support their agenda, and that is what we have to prevent. It makes no sense whatsoever to educate children and to have blind alleys, areas that you won't go into because it's a bit difficult, it's a bit controversial. Um, you've got to have the confidence in the values of your society and in wanting to impart those and embed those in the children. And you have to get them to share their feelings, you've got to get it out into the open, and you've got to if you like, lance the boil so that it's not there to be used by somebody else in the future. Ian Fenn talking to Martin Wainwright. Now, does journalism exist? That was the question posed last night by Alan Rusbridger as he discussed the impact the internet is having on traditional media. The Guardian's editor was giving the annual Hugh Cudlip lecture delivered in previous years by Paul Dacre, Alistair Campbell and Rebecca Wade. Reassuringly for those of us working at The Guardian, he thinks journalism does exist. Of course I believe journalism exists, otherwise um, I'm... You wouldn't the, be one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, otherwise I'm in the wrong job. Uh, but uh, it's going to... It, uh, I suspect what we do is going to be quite different in ten years' time um, in many respects. But I think we, should, we, should, we shouldn't lose hold or lose confidence in what we do. Uh, but I think this idea of withdrawing from the world uh, and imagining that we are such figures of authority uh, that people are going to uh, pay 
is a very dangerous one. And the, the final, final bit of it is um, by erecting a paywall, you are, I think, exposing yourself to great commercial risk. This, this, is, the, this is why the whole question is so different. A universal paywall, we're, we're, we're saying uh, mobile might be different. But if you say, for instance, our arts or books coverage is so brilliant that people will come and pay at the same time as we know that sometimes um, within the same organization, i.e. Murdoch has got a very good free book site, which is uh, bound to attack his own paid-for book site. Uh, but there are lots of people out there who are trying to unbundle a newspaper uh, and do little bits of it better. And the more you erect paywalls and expect people to pay, the more the natural tendency is going to be that, pe that people will, will go to these free sites. Alan Rusbridger talking to Matt Wells, and that's from an interview which you can see today at guardian.co.uk slash media. Guardian Daily was produced today by Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe. I'm John Dennis. Thank you for listening.